What's up, y'all? Thank you for listening to Above the Noise, a podcast where we tell the extraordinary stories of ordinary people like you and I. A lot has changed in the world since the last episode, so we found it extremely timely to have a conversation with young leaders of color regarding how COVID-19 is affecting our communities and how you can start developing your opinions on social and political challenges at a time where your opinion is heavily needed. My name is Daniel, and alongside my co-host Ayana, we welcome you to the third episode of Above the Noise, Shaking the Table. Uh, thank you all for having me. Uh, my name is Caleb Sewell. I'm from Aurora, Colorado. Um, I'm currently a sophomore at the University of Missouri-Columbia, where I'm double majoring in um, educational studies and Black studies with the emphasis in um, Black politics. Hi, I'm AJ Foster. I am a fourth year at the University of Missouri, studying Black Studies with a double minor in Psychology and Criminal and Juvenile Justice um, on a pre-law track. And I am from St. Louis, Missouri. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Roddy Huron. Uh, I belong to the Pueblo of Vesada, which is located about 13 miles south of Albuquerque, Mexico. And I am currently a fourth year communication student at the University of Missouri with uh, emphasis in political communication and media communication and minoring in indigenous studies. My name is Vanessa Ramirez. I am a third year political science student at the University of Missouri and I am from Kansas City. To get the conversation started, we're gonna dive into uh, COVID-19, right? And I think we've all heard the statistics about how it's disproportionately affecting communities of color, specifically black Americans. And so um, here are some statistics and these are just kind of to lay the ground about what's happening in our communities. And, um, you know, we're gonna pick everybody's brain about how you feel about it. Number one, in Illinois, black people make up 14% of the population, but 46% of total COVID-19 deaths. In Utah, Latinos only make up 14% of the population, but over 29% of positive cases. For indigenous communities, the main response to COVID-19 has been through the Indian Health Service, which is reporting over 2,000 positive cases. Also with those stats, um, kind of find also an article in the Washington Post kind of giving reasons as to why these communities of color are being disproportionately affected. Um, there are four reasons. They had um, higher rates of underlying um, health conditions and less access to health care. Um, a lot of these people hold a lot of the essential jobs that um, are um, still going on. There has been an insufficient amount of information given from government to these communities uh, concerning COVID-19, um, as well as some housing disparities. Um, so when I read that information, it was kind of alarming um, to see that and to kind of understand that this is the realness that's going on in our communities. Um, for me personally, my, my mother has been talking about it a lot because um, she's a healthcare worker. So I've been really, really instilled on um, how can I tell those around me and uh, the people that I stay with or that I communicate with, how do I talk to them about what's going on as well? Because all of this is obviously new to all of us, but the fact that it's disproportionately affecting us like this is a huger problem in itself. So we kind of wanted to hear from you guys on how your families and how your communities have been um, individually impacted by COVID-19. Okay, I guess I can start. So I know for, for me personally, going off of the data too, I saw this one thing from the American Public Media uh, Research Lab that was talking about too, the, much, the mortality rate for COVID-19 um, victims. So for Black Americans, it's 2.9 times higher than the rate for Asians, 2.7 times higher um, than the rate for whites, and then 2.5 times higher than the rate for uh, Latinx folks as well. 
So you talk about not only the, the stat of actually getting COVID-19, but also the risk of the mortality rate once you do get it. So I know for me, especially as a, as a black um, person who's black in America too, like seeing how that affects that, then looking at my family as well, and seeing people in my family who are, who are at risk of different conditions um, in these housing areas as well. Um, it's, it's sad, but at the same time, like I was not um, shocked at the data either. Because I think like, especially when you are living in America, when you're already succumbed to so many different crises and crises and um, discrimination, like seeing the effects of COVID-19 was not a surprise. But because it was a surprise, you always wanna think about how can you tackle it? How can you tackle the results? So for me, talking to my mom, talking to my grandma, um, and talking to my sister and other, my cousins as well, it, is looking at what we can do to, to do the, the risk of, of the virus. Um, but as well as look at too, like I know my grandma, and other family members are doing things like DoorDash as well to make to make money as well. How can we outlast the virus as well with um, the financial constraints of it, but also to protect ourselves at the same time? Okay, this is AJ again. Like similar to Caleb, um, like a lot of the data that I've been seeing and even hearing on here is horrible and it's really really sad. Honestly, like I'm not shocked like at all. Once we look at a lot of trends in America, in the U.S. specifically, especially for people of color, there's always disproportionate like rates. Like no matter what it is, we're always at a disadvantage. And so something that like I've been constantly thinking about is again family um, because I'm still in Colombia. And like the rest of my family is in like St. Louis. And so like because everyone like in my immediate family, like in my home has like underlying conditions like asthma. Um, my mom was like recently diagnosed with cancer last year around this time. I took it upon myself to like decide to stay in Columbia just because I'm not too sure like I'm not good with science I'm not sure how like everything works but I've seen the one two three videos about how quick this can spread like I took it upon myself to like decide to stay in Columbia because I'm not too sure like how this will play out in the end I'm not too sure like how long it will last um people are saying like states are opening up at the end of the month or like the end of May um People are saying we may not go back to school in August. So that's kind of one of the precautions I've been taking a lot. But again, I think I'm constantly like on my phone, like looking up statistics, like looking up facts, looking up things. And I'm just thinking about everybody who is in my community at like at school, or like on campus. And um, I tend to like surround myself with people who are like very like like-minded as me. Um, and so, like, having conversations with them, like, just checking in on them, checking in on their families, and knowing people who've, like, been impacted by this, like, family members have passed, or they're not able to go to family members' funerals. Um, and in the Black community, like, funerals, like, that's when you see everybody in the family. Like, that's the one time that you know you're going to see somebody that you haven't met before, you haven't seen them in, like, over 10 years um, and so knowing that like this not only is like impacting people like financially, but like emotionally as well, because um, like I haven't been home literally since December and like I'm not planning on going home anytime soon. Like I said, because like my mom is working from home um, and my niece like is in and out of the house as well, because like she like is either spending the night at her mom's house or she's sleeping at my mom's house.
Um, and so like, that's something that I've been kind of like constantly thinking about too, is just like the impact it has on like communal relationships, like families, um, the impact of loved ones, communities and things like that. So yeah, it's kind of, it's unfortunate. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the information that we get and that we get passed down to us is only passed down through people who are in those rooms and sit in those avenues, you know, like, like Ayana was saying, like, we don't get information, like, at the same time as other people. Um, this is a fact. This has always been a thing. This will probably continue to be a thing. Um, but that's definitely something I've been looking at, like, especially with the amount of resources or accommodations that different businesses or different systems have just magically appeared to have, you know, like for example, I didn't even know Mizzou had Wi-Fi hotspots. When were we gonna know this? The Wi-Fi has been trashed for like years. Like this is my fourth year, like it has been trashed for years. And knowing that like I have people on my Res Life staff who had to go back home who like stay literally like where there is no Wi-Fi. Like they have to drive over 10 miles, 15 miles to go to like a McDonald's for free Wi-Fi. And you can't sit in because everything is closed, like it's takeout. So then what is like really the solution to it? Um, but yeah, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but not to take up space. I'm gonna mute myself now. And Oh man, where to start? There's there's a lot, I guess, regarding towards like COVID-19 and indigenous communities. I've been trying to stay and plugged in to it as much as I could, but it's a little exhausting at times just because like what um, AJ and Carol have been talking about, like it was only a matter of time before it was going to hit like our communities. And so it was just kind of seeing when and how that's going to play out because with indigenous communities, or at least indigenous communities in the U.S., you get this whole weird situation of us being like, uh, trustees of the federal government so through treaties and different um responsibilities that the federal government has taken on they provide health care for us and so i was just like ihs is a flawed system in of itself so how is it going to handle a pandemic and so then just kind of having that in mind and just being like okay who's who how, how's it going to affect us and then seeing like the navajo nation having some of the highest cases out of the entire country and it's one of the biggest yeah it is the biggest reservation in the United States and just seeing how much those numbers are affecting them has just been, I guess, eye-opening too to the, the lack of uh, resources in that far, in that way. So I've been trying to keep up with like every tribe and like stuff like that. But back home in Isleta, at least, we had about two, we had two, two or three cases and that was kind of stressful too because it's just, you know, it's your community. It's, it was just really stressful because me and my, my dad uh, live out here in the Casey area or a little bit farther from the Casey area. And it was stressful because it's like, you want to help, but there's not a whole lot we can do other than just pass on these infographics that we see put out by these different advocacy groups to like, okay, because we have a Facebook group for our, uh, for a lot of our tribal members. And we're like, okay, like here are the things that you should be doing, like avoid uh, prolonged um, social exposures, social distance, wash your hands a lot and just, trying to put those out as, as much as we could. So that's been a little rough just to feel powerless in that and just be like, man, I really want to be doing something, but putting out information is all I can do in that current moment. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else as far as that, because that was stressful in of itself and trying to see how different tribes are trying to react to this because my Pueblo about 
I think it was a week or two into this, they shut down uh, visitors to non-tribal residents and then uh, reservations across the country are doing that, different tribes as well, uh, because a lot of the Pueblos are being affected, uh, specifically like the more rural ones. We're in a weird situation. It's not that we're like only 10 minutes away from Albuquerque, but a lot of these other Pueblos up in the different areas, they're like really rural. And so then you have that lack of infrastructure, lack of um, healthcare providing, and then it just creates this whole, it's just like a breeding ground for this pandemic. So that's just kind of stressful. And something that I think else to touch on is like all of this is, is not anything new, I guess, to Native communities and probably even like your all's communities too, this idea of like a pandemic or like a world changing sort of event. And I was thinking about that a lot as it was kind of starting out because there's this term that gets thrown around, around a lot of historical trauma. I'm sure it is for your all's communities too, but in indigenous communities of how like these prolonged traumas have kind of like affected us and how we we act. And I just kept thinking about it more with this pandemic because I'm like, it was like a weird kind of anxiousness, you know, like obviously it's like a stressful situation, but it's like a, I, this feels like really familiar and I'm uncomfortable with it. And just kind of thinking of like how this isn't a new, I guess, thing for my community, at least whenever the Spanish came through and just kind of the things that happened through that and just thinking more about that and how this is just, kind of re-igniting um, some traumas and some of those triggers. Being a part of the Latinx community and not just Latinx community, but uh, immigrant community, refugee community, I think a lot of folks that I'm surrounded by are, um, they're not only gonna not receive stimulus checks, they're not only not gonna receive financial assistance from the government, but there's folks that are literally worried about being deported. And that's like a whole nother stress on top of the economical impact that comes with this whole pandemic, right? And so um, like right now, I'm helping someone, one of my family friends go through the process to get her um, permanent residency. And it's, it's frustrating. It's, it's so frustrating because she's worried about getting all of these things turned in um, ASAP, right? And everything's shut down. Like all the offices she's calling is shut down. Everything that she's calling either has a, a because nobody's working or because the government at this time, that's not their priority, right? And not even like we, we, Wow, if we even get into the fact that detention centers full of immigrants that are waiting to be deported are not being, are not being, are not in safe conditions. That's, it's like prisons, right? We see that pr people in prison right now are the least cared for um, during this pandemic. And it's the same thing with ICE detention centers. Nobody is in there telling um, people that are, are being detained by ICE, this is what's happening. Um, this is what's what's spreading. This is how fast it's spreading. And nonetheless, like, are they even, do they even have the, the basic utilities in there to survive what they need um, to be able to have, to be living in healthy conditions, right? So, um, yeah, I just, I think it's such a, it's such a frustrating moment for the Latinx community, the undocumented community. Um, I know a lot of folks right now, a lot of family members, a lot of friends are worried because not only are they not getting stimulus checks, but what happens when you do get sick? Um, 
you're not, you don't have any financial assistance from the government. So a lot of people would rather, not only would rather stay home because they can't afford, but a lot of undocumented immigrants are afraid to go into hospitals and get deported. And I mean, people might say like, yeah, but they can't do that, right? Like ICE can't do that, right? It has happened before. And even if there's a slim chance that ICE might do that, I would not doubt that ICE would be waiting in the entrance of any hospitals in big cities right now to detain people. And even if there are laws in place, what if you're an undocumented immigrant, what from this country, what truthfulness do you have that you will be safe walking into any environment and not get deported? Um, simply because of history, simply because of what has happened, what is happening. So yeah, I just I think um a lot of what we're we're talking about in in this in society right now in mainstream media about these stimulus checks, about healthcare, about all of these things, just imagine not being able to apply for any of that. So if you feel frustrated because you haven't gotten your stimulus check, because you haven't gotten your unemployment, because you haven't gotten your Medicaid, whatever it is, imagine not even being able to count on any of that, not being able to rely on any of that because of your status in this country. And that to me is truly, truly sickening. That's, that's like something that, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's way too much. And um, yeah, that's, that's how I'm feeling right now. I think we can all agree that this um, has just brought forth even more the inequities that we already know exist in all of our communities, right? Um, and the intersections between all of our communities and a bunch of these issues. Young people of color are often told that our politics are too radical, are um, shaking the table a little too much, right? And so has there been a moment where you have felt like your views were not accepted, whether it's in the classroom, at work, or even in your own families? Or has there also been a moment that has marked your political or social views? For me, it comes down to, to two things. One is the first time that, um, not that I realized that I was black, <laughs> but um, that I saw the effects of my blackness that it had on other people. Um, so I remember being in, uh, I think it was second grade, and I was at the um, public library, um, like next to where I was staying at. And I went into the little kids area, um, the little kids library area, and I was on one of the computers. And um, I was playing some game on the computer and I saw the person next to me playing um, some, probably like some cool, cool map games, one of those two things. And I was like, hey, what website are you on? And the um, person didn't answer. So I was like, they didn't hear me. So then I asked again, um, I got no answer again. <laughs> so I was like, hey, I was like, you can't, I was like, can you hear me? I was like, oh, what game are you playing? I think I wanna play that game. And um, the person t turned to me and they said, I can't talk to black people. And I'm like, as a second grader, one, I was, I didn't know what to say, I had no words, right? So my, my reaction was to just get up and leave. Uh, Cause two, I knew if I told my mom, whew, things could have been a lot worse, you know what I'm saying? So I just decided to get up and leave. And I didn't really think about that um, until a couple years later. And I started reflecting on that and kind of what that made me realize um, when it comes to being conscious, right? You think about um, being a marginalized person in America, you think about having double consciousness, right? Um, so for me, that kind of sparked um, me realizing the effect my blackness could have on, on even communicating with different people, um, people who are in the, the same grade as me, um, 
whatever. And then two, the second thing, so I grew up in the church as well. Um, like I was a church boy growing up. And I know oftentimes, like later on, I was in these white evangelical spaces and churches and things. Um, so obviously, um, there's different views and stuff there. But but two, I know during the, uh, of course, the 2016 election time, right? Um, you started seeing these more um, exposing pockets or, or lack of um, lack of love for people, um, lack of um, justice for people. Um, I'll say lack of intelligence, right? Lack of actually understanding what uh, you know scripture says too. And I started seeing people um, in these church spaces, right? In these spaces, really just expose themselves for you know the ignorant people that they are. Um, and, and for me, that that kind of that hurt me, right? Because of course I grew up in the church, but um, it really to me was just like a, a reflection of my advocacy and, and where I can start with that. And I know I ended up leaving like church spaces for a little bit after that too, and, and figuring out um, like what does justice look like for me, and then too um, reaffirming my, my faith in that as well. And so these people don't represent the faith, so therefore, um, right, what can I do to change that? And um, reflecting on what is again like what does justice look like, and where can I go from that? And to kind of um, looking at things that matter, like okay, you talk about being pro-life, but are you actually pro-life if you don't believe in? things like healthcare, if you don't think Black Lives Matter, right? If you don't believe in um, the rise of LGBTQ folks, right? So you think about all these things, right? How um, if your faith's not lining up with what, um, with your, your politics, right, what you believe in, then you're not really a person of faith, right? You're not really reflecting what your faith's about. Um, so for me, that kind of started um, my own journey, per se, of, of looking at justice and, and believing in more of these um, progressive stances as well. As of now, like whenever I reflect back onto just like very pivotal conversations or like moments in my life, my first one is like always when I was in like, I think I was in like kindergarten or first grade. Um, and I went to like predominantly white Catholic school. Um, and I was one of two black kids in my class. And when I say like, this is like your stereotypical, like being taught in a Catholic school, like our teachers are nuns, like we go to church right next door, like we have mass, like all of that. Um, and I remember like there was some kind of scuffle, like there was a scuffle in the class and like my teacher's back was like to us. And so she turns around and like everybody's running back to their seat, right? Like everybody's just like, oh, we didn't do anything. Um, and automatically, like, she calls, like, the black guy in my class, David, she's like, David, I know that I just had a conversation with you about your behavior, and whole time, like, you can tell David literally did not move his seat, like, he's like this, like, half sleep, like, and so in that moment, I'm just looking like, dang, like, she really be snapping on David, like, and of course, you know, I think, like, even talking right now out loud about it, like, reflecting back, I think it was not only me recognizing that, you know, the one of two Black kids in class is, like, being disruptive, like, that's your opinion, like, that's your assumption, right? Um, but also thinking, too, like, this other idea, like, this other, like, topic of, like, colorism, like, I'm very, like, 
very aware that I'm a light-skinned woman. And um, when I was younger, I was even lighter. Like, I was very, very light. Um, and David was dark-skinned. And so I think that's why, like, I had never experienced, like, her being, like, rude to me, per se, or, like, you know, making assumptions about me. Um, it was always, like, me looking at her and how she reacted to David. And... I would go home like literally every week and talk to my mom about it and be like, yeah, mom, like, I don't know why she act like this towards him. Like, she's just so mean. Like, I hate this school. Da, 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 da. And my mom also, too, is not like she's definitely gotten better, I think, since I've been to college and since um, like I have kind of expanded and I've grown and I've learned through things. Um, but when we were younger, like my mom did not talk about black like she did not talk about our identities as black women um because I grew up in a house with like all girls like I have all sisters um she never talked about that she never talked about our intersecting identities of being like black women she never talked about um you know she just we just didn't talk about it and so growing up like I went to like after I left that Catholic school like all of my schools are black like predominantly black and so it was nothing for me to like really think about. It was nothing for me to talk about, to really care about either, um, because I'm really just here to go to school. Like all my friends black, we good. Like it don't matter. Like we just know that, you know, obviously I changed my views now, but like we just know that we don't like the white teachers. Like that's all we know. And, um, and so it wasn't until like I got to high school where you know junior year you're thinking about what colleges you applying to act scores all this other stuff and i'm first generation so like really again i'm here to go to school as of now my goal is to just graduate high school and then i'll be good um and it really wasn't until like my college counselor um like my high school college counselor like she was talking to me about schools that i would apply to and she, were, she was giving me all of these, like, options, like, she was just, like, giving me all these options that were, like, so expensive, and I'm, like, do you, like, you know how much money my mother makes? My mother literally makes less than 50k a year. I, like, am the only one that's projected to go to college, like, in my family out of my siblings, and I'm the youngest, so, like, who do you think is going to pay for this? And my GPA was trash, and so is my ACT score, and so, it wasn't until that moment, like, I was talking to her, and she was like, well, you know, you can aim for this because, like, you know, this is kind of where you set the bar. And I'm looking at the schools, and I'm seeing, like, you know, like, a whole bunch of, like, community colleges, JUCOs, like, trade schools. She even, like, had the Army on there and stuff. And I was like, I don't even know what any of this is either. And it really wasn't until, like, I'm talking to my white friends, and I'm like, yeah, so, like, what schools did y'all get to apply for? And they, like, sending me, like, they tell me all these Ivy League schools, like, these four-year universities. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, interesting. Okay, interesting enough. And I had already had, like, the vibes from her, like, from when I had came in as a freshman. Like, again, I had went to predominantly black schools, and so we had to test to get into my high school because um, it was gifted or whatever. Um, and just the 
the attitude towards everybody who came from my middle school like every single day it was constant like oh y'all aren't the smartest like y'all are kind of you know like where y'all come from like you sure y'all should be in this school or you sure y'all can go to college like you sure that's what you want to do um and so again like I said like growing up I had never had conversations like with my mom about you know like people just not vibing with me based off something that I can't change um and I had talked to my mom about it and I was like yeah you know I'm not really understanding like why you're rooting for this school so much like they clearly hate black people or like they hate black people who are poor like really is what it was like they don't like poor black people um and so I think that was the first time I had thought about education and like this idea of like progressive education and being like elitist and classes and and again like this idea of colorism as well because I'm sitting here all of my friends are like dark-skinned black women and I'm just a, like just thinking about what choices did they get um like I'm telling myself like okay well Elisa like you know just be thankful she even gave you colleges to apply to um their list had nothing like their list was you know hey you graduate after you graduate maybe you try to take the the uh army test and you know figure it out from there like and so I'm thinking to myself you know how will like how successful will I be when I go to college if like I'm already starting off at the bottom in high school um and so again that was like something that I think that I, I constantly think about now um is you know education reform and even the word reform is a is a tricky word to use as well because you know I feel like just that word in itself like when you try to go into reform things you tend to make them worse um, with this idea like I'm going to help people out right um, and so that's something that like I feel like I've always kind of been passionate about um, just really ever since like just all of my experiences in education whether that was when I was younger when I was in high school me in college now um, and so really I think like I'm just really thankful for like again the community that I've center myself around and that I've intentionally built around myself um, because I think if I if I wasn't in the community that I was in at Mizzou now um, I really don't know where I would be on that like scale of oh, okay like you know like what do you know about this or like are you passionate about this do you care about people like because again I only worried about myself like me and my blackness is all that mattered to me like before I came to college like you good that's cool but I need to make sure like I'm good first and so I think now that I've like grown up and I've matured and I've like met so many different people so many different um just got, like I said like different people it's more it's so much easier for me to be to like question things or to kind of challenge people who are saying like inappropriate things or who are doing inappropriate things um, now that like I have a community built around me. Growing up, I grew up in a pretty like small, predominantly white town a little bit. Well, it's it's like 40 minutes outside of Kansas City. I'll say that's a little bit outside of Kansas City. And so my experiences here, I guess, is being like, I think one of like two native kids, supposedly there's a Cherokee Nation citizen somewhere around here. But anyways, 
have like my experiences growing up here it was just like a lot of like erasure and ignorance towards pretty much anybody who wasn't white but also just like for me it was I noticed it a lot for like indigenous people because I was I never really like quite understood like my indigenous identity like a lot being younger you know like it was just kind of um a little similar to AG my dad didn't talk a lot about it and so I just knew that oh I'm Blake uh, or I'm a sledder like that's a part of like who I am in some way don't know the details of it too much but, but that's who I am and so I would like constantly be telling people about that and then just the comments I would get back it would always be like well you don't look like a native or an Indian it would always be an Indian or blah 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 and just all these like different comments and like these ideas that a lot of the people here didn't have like these oh gosh what's the non-academic word I was about to say schema these backgrounds or these baselines of what like indigeneity looks like and like the broad spectrum and what that can be and like understanding all these indigenous issues and so like growing up here I always felt like I was like the token Indian advocate of like talking about something like we'd be talking about something in American government class and I'd be like well shit do y'all know about like uh Trail of Tears do you all know about like these policies enacted blah 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 blah, and stuff like that and so so much so that I felt like everything I did was centered around like trying to bring awareness to that and so then fast forwarding that to um college uh, like I was also kind of politically active not a whole lot like I kept up with the news but I think the thing that really like unlocked it all for me was probably like the Dakota Access Pipeline movement and just seeing like how historic that was in of itself because in high school anything and everything I'd ever learned about like any sort of American Indian policy like American Indian like social movement had always been outside like me learning for myself or find somehow finding some random documentary and be like, oh, I didn't know that the American Indian movement was in the 1960s during like the civil rights movement. I was like, that that was whole news to me. And so then seeing something like huge, a huge scale in 2016, and seeing like these issues of uh, indigenous peoples being met with like ridiculous amounts of force, mercenary groups, all just for wanting to one stand up for their sovereign rights and two like protecting their water. And just seeing like these, all of these different things, all these array of things being at play, whether that's from just straight up racism towards a lot of the Native people to these structural things that are put in place to ensure that we can't fight for things like that. And just seeing all of this play out really kind of got me thinking about it more. And then, so that just kind of, I think has fueled a lot of my advocacy in the way that I try and learn about things a lot more because I'm like, wow, there's a lot there's a lot at play as far as like federal Indian policy goes, but then you start looking at like the, all these structural things that affect them too. And it's like, it's like, Oh my God, <laughs> growing up, like not talking about that. It's just like whole, it's, it's mind blowing and trying to see that. So that's definitely where I've kind of come from and kind of got my interest in Indian policy and advocacy because like I was kind of hitting on earlier, we like there's 566 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And so then that in of itself grants us a weird, different political standing than a lot of marginalized groups in the United States. And so it just creates this whole weird bubble sometimes because then we have, uh, we, we have our own department that's specifically meant to interact with indigenous communities. And then seeing how that department is sometimes more so in the interests of like capitalistic endeavors, like with them opening up um, sacred sites for drilling and fracking and then you just have like all these other things when in fact like our sovereignty isn't granted by the united states we're, we're, we're sovereign entities whether they recognize it or not 
And so just seeing that and trying to understand that more has been really just a mind-boggling experience, as well as just having that experience of like that people don't know a whole lot about indigenous issues and trying to figure out like how to not battle it, but how, how to like make that better or fix that for for as much as I can in my own little circles. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I've come from. Yeah, similar to everybody else, I think at a young age I realized at a very, very, very young age, I realized that uh I was different and I guess I've always seen my differences from society being very positive and very I've been grateful, you know, but um when I started to get older I started to realize that not everybody sees my difference my differences my cultural differences the way that I look the way that I speak as uh, a good thing and so basically my environments growing up made me realize you know how my place in society and and my my role and what I do and what I say um and how it has an effect it has a big effect on on people who may not see um, society or may not be used to people like me, right? And so I have a lot of family still back in, in Los Angeles and we go visit back sometimes. My family's originally from there. And it's crazy because Los Angeles is a big city with a lot of, not just Latinos, but a lot of different people, a lot of different folks. And it's a border state, right? So you get all of these cultures mixed um, in one big city and it's crazy. And then I come to the Midwest and yeah, it's... Uh, there's there's many different communities here, but it's not the same thing. And, you know, here, my mom has her own house cleaning business. And so from growing up and seeing all of these Latinos around me coming here and um, my mom being into this, this profession, professional, um, this profession has really opened my eyes to not just inequities, but the way people see Latinx folks undocumented folks, immigrants, refugees in our society, right? Um, I mean, my mom has had her fair share of either racist or oppressive encounters with uh, clients. But even then, take for example right now, my mom barely got her permanent residency last year. This woman has been in the States for over 25 years. You know, she hasn't been back to see her family in Mexico in over 25 years. And even then her family here in the States, she's afraid to go visit sometimes because of her her status, right? And so my mom barely got her residency and now she's grateful for that, but we still go through these hurdles of financial economic strains of like right now, a decrease in her business because people don't want their houses being cleaned um, by someone coming in from outside, right? And so a lot of, thankfully, a lot of her her clients have been um, nice enough, kind enough to Venmo, uh, Cash App, or or um, Apple Pay something through through the phone, right? But a lot of them don't realize that this is the only, literally the only way folks make their money, right? So essential essential workers, like who are the essential workers? Who are the people? The majority of folks who are working in essential jobs either get paid in cash because they don't have a social security number or the above, right? Don't have healthcare, don't have all of these things that when they are put at risk will not cover them. All of these, I, I feel like I've always been around these inequities because I've had family that are essential workers. I've had family members who are putting these circum- these really, really tight spots. Um, but it wasn't until 
I guess getting older, I'm a college or so that I realized this was the norm for me. You know, like I've always been around people, folks who are in these professions, or I've always been around folks who um, come from certain immigrant backgrounds. And it wasn't until I got to college that I'm a political science major. Cool, people are asking me why I'm in political science. Like, like it's a fun thing, you know, <laughs> like, I feel like for me, political science was, um, it was just a no brainer. Cause I'm like, yeah, I've always translated government documents for my mom. I've always done these like government things for my family members. No duh. Like I'm going to go with this, you know, but for other people, I've realized like you ask them, so why political science? You're like, why this, why that? And they have this like free, not like carefree responsive, you know, I just, I really enjoy it and this and that and da 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 da. When I wish I could be saying the same thing sometimes because everything that has to come with government for me has been negative, literally everything. And it's, it's really sad. It's super, super sad that we have folks that go into these professions that don't have options. Majority of people who come from disproportionate communities with lack of resources, right? Come from it of the stance of like, I have to do this rather than like, oh yeah, it's a cool thing. I really enjoy it, this and that, whatever. It's really important to recognize that some of us are um, shown blatant inequity from the minute we're born and it's, it's not a choice. Absolutely. Thank you so much guys for sharing those perspectives. I really feel like a lot of people are gonna benefit from this conversation that's being had because I am being blessed by hearing all of these perspectives myself. Do you all feel like there has been a political candidate that has inspired you the most to support them? Of course, one like my, I guess, kind of identity and looking at politics, of course. Well, um, I would say again, when I was like in third grade, like of course, Barack Obama, right? Um, that was like, the person that I was able to see like, okay, wow, this is a man who looks like me, you know, who has um, some stances that I can identify with. Um, like, I remember getting in trouble in, like, the cafeteria um, because I saw this, like, Obama chant at the lunch table <laughs> while people were voting, like, in, the, in, like, another room nearby. So, I, like, I know that um, Obama, like, definitely inspired me. President Barack Obama inspired me during that time in my youth. Um, I remember um, my third grade teacher, my homeroom teacher, uh, she was on the plane when um, President Obama, like, it got announced that he was uh, elected. And she said, she told me that the first person like she thought it was me when she came back. Um, like that was really somebody who like really uh, inspired me um, in my youth at that time. And then of course now we can we can look at and debate how effective he actually was for people from um, our communities, right? But like inspiring as like a um, an inspiration, like inspiring person, inspiring candidate. That was who it was back then. Then of course now Bernie Sanders definitely was that person. I was like, okay, wow, like this man is tackling systems like uh, capitalism, tackling all these areas of injustice, right? Um, valuing people who are undocumented, et cetera. Um, and although uh, I wasn't too fond on some of, like, some of his stances on, on race, right, or colorblind policies, he definitely was inspiring to me when he was tackling these systems of injustice. Um, and like that most candidates don't even choose to tackle. So he was definitely somebody that I was inspired by in this, um, this cycle. I was, you know, rooting for uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, I think that out of all of the candidates for the upcoming presidential election, I think that uh, my views 
aligned more with his just because I feel like I'm more on uh I'm more on the progressive side I think like in my opinion um which kind of was like shocking to me that a lot of other people like our age like in college at Mizzou who are POC were like yeah no like no like you know again like I mean Joe whatever cool like I guess, but you know, it was so shocking to me. Like we had uh, to host an event for, I think it was for Delta Week, um, and, and we were talking about uh, presidential candidates. And I think at the time, I think Elizabeth Warren had just dropped out, like maybe two days before, two or three days before. Um, and I was talking to people like in a room and stuff like that, and you know mostly everybody in here, like everybody in the room was like black women, right? Um, and so I'm talking to them and I'm like getting their views and stuff and I'm talking and I'm talking to them more and I'm like, wow, y'all are actually like, a lot of people are very, very like on the moderate side, like on the conservative side, like, you know, and I was like, okay, interesting. Like, you know, like very interesting. Um, but I think in general, for people that know me in the, what was it, 70s when um, Angela Davis ran for vice president, to this day, like to this day, I think she is probably the only person who has run for office, who has run for anything that I think I can, like, I've done so much research on her and so much research on like her politics, her views, her opinions on things. And I'm like, this is a president. This is a leader, but you know, unfortunately, that's not how uh, America works. Um, and so, yeah, I think, of course, like I was rooting for Bernie, like all the way, hundred percent. It's unfortunate that we failed him twice now. You know, it's very unfortunate, I think. But you know, I'm here to just say everybody should ex like exercise their right to vote. Um, and then also be very cognizant of people who do not have the right to vote, um, who are not afforded that opportunity, even though they pay taxes, even though they contribute to our society, our country, they work, um, which I think is a very important conversation to have now, especially when we're talking about essential workers. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know much else to say after that, but dot, dot, dot. I think it's very fitting. Uh, I like that question, Ayanna. Like, I think it's very fitting for like, the topic of this conversation in this episode's podcast, like this podcast episode. Um, but yeah, I think definitely Bernie, um, but like all the way, like 100% Angela Davis. I too was a big Bernie fan and I was very sad to see his campaign come to a halt. So that was a, oh, that, that, that hit too hard seeing all that go down. And then you throw in all that stuff of a certain candidate uh, having people go out and vote despite a pandemic. So that was kind of also eye-opening too during all this. So that was just, uh, that's that's been a whole mess in of itself. But I was a big fan of Bernie in 2016 because he brought on a uh, amazing um, Native woman uh, lawyer, environmental lawyer, Tara Huska. And she was like his Indian policy person. And she was like, she she's just phenomenal in all the stuff she does, organizing and uh, lawyering and all that stuff. And she's just dope. So seeing him kind of be plugged in to that community, more so than like other candidates at the time, like I think around this time, there was only about maybe five candidates that had any sort of like Indian policy stuff. So just seeing him being still leading that, that kind of charge was just awesome to see. But yeah, he was, man, 
could have been cool. But uh, <laughs> as far as like people in another elected office, I'm definitely uh, Representative Deb Holland's biggest fan. Oh man, love that woman. Just because I was so excited to see her running for uh, New Mexico's uh, first district because she was the first native woman from the state and just seeing like her career in her community and just everything that she's been able to do now even too has been kind of cool because I got to spend oh gosh last summer in DC and so just seeing like a lot of the policies how she was leading in so many just federal Indian policies and the fact that there's there's only about oh god how many are there now there's I think four four uh representatives out of um, the House of Representatives that are Native American and seeing her being uh, a freshman congresswoman and just leading the charge in there and being like, okay, like I'm going to be fighting for this. I'm going to be fighting for that. And the fact that she's just really willing to be a advocate for like all uh, tribes really in her position while she does not like, while she only probably, I don't know if she has a tribe in her district, but the fact that she's been more than willing to like go up there and fight for them. And also as well as her constituents has just been really, amazing to see because I didn't think I would see something like that with, within my lifetime. So then seeing that like that can happen and also somebody in that position of power can get these these policies pushed forward is amazing because in the CARES Act, she, as well as a few of the other representatives, really like instrumental in trying to get funding for tribes so that they can um, do a lot of the relief effort for what's going on in our communities through COVID. And because I've been watching a lot of town halls and she was talking about how they originally went in there asking for I think it was like 20 billion and they ended up getting like 8 billion, which is a big difference. But still just seeing that she was able to be there, be herself, be represent her people. And just, I don't know, it's just really inspiring to have somebody like that representing you when in the past you haven't had that. It's just really awesome. So that's kind of my tangent on that. Yeah. I think uh, the perfect candidate obviously doesn't exist. Um, and we all know that. Right. And so, I would probably focus more on local government and uh, congressional district representatives that have either um, had a positive impact on me or a, a glimpse of hope in such a difficult government, difficult society. Um, people like Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, people like Congresswoman Sharice Davis, uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman um, Ocasio-Cortez are all people that, all women, let's just point that out first, all women that say it how it is and have done things to back up their actions, back up, back up their words, I mean. For me, it's looking to these local um, representatives that are really rooted in their community. I feel like nowadays we have so many congressional folks that have been representing that district or have been representing certain people for so many years that at this point, they don't even like, they, they don't question getting elected because they know they will be because they've been in that certain spot, that certain seat for years, right? And so people coming in to shake the table <laughs> are the ones that are uh, most of the time, the underdogs that come from a non-political background that are going against these incumbents that have been there for years that have big donors. So for me, it would be uh, these women and like the perfect candidate is never going to exist, right? I mean, mad love to Obama, but how many people were deported under his under his administration? Mad love to like all of these people that a lot of people care for them and a lot of people look up to them. 
But like I said, we can't, we can't negotiate representation. We can't negotiate um, these people that look like us, but not look at their actions, right? So when Julian Castro was, uh, when Julian Castro was running for pre his presidency, yeah, the first Latino to be represented to, to um, you know, want to run for a presidential seat, like that was amazing. But a lot of folks, neglected that either you're going to be on this side or you're going to be on this side like there's no gray area at this point there's no gray area i feel like the trump era has really really brought into into play that there's no gray area anymore you either say what you're going to do or you don't and unfortunately that's what people i feel like that's what our society has been played off of these last couple of years right politicians that have been saying these wonderful words and have been like um have been presenting these wonderful ideas into the way that they say things but in the end like what are you gonna what are you truly going to do and so i think that's where we're at with politicians and really seeking i think that's how you can identify which politicians are the ones that you really want to root for and which ones are the one that you want to weed out even if they quote unquote aren't racist or quote unquote aren't this or that right it's the ones that are actually going to do something at this point I think if I had to share my little insight on that, I would just continue to emphasize that specifically to people of color, like we do hold a lot of power, like our votes matter a lot. And so, you know, when we vote for someone like their policy should actually do something for us, even if they want to stand up there and give us an amazing video and they have the perfect family or, you know, whatever, does that translate into everyday working class people living a better life in this country. You know, the whole purpose of having these conversations for all of us really is to try to get more people involved in the process, right? We, I, my personal opinion is that everyone should have an opinion, like everyone should care about something so that we can all commonly find um, some type of thing to come around. Like if you could share anything to someone who is building the confidence to want to share their opinion, not only with their families, with their friends, but you know, with the world, like on social media or, you know, whatever platform that they have, um, what would you say to them? I always say like, go to your public library and read more. Like read, read, read. Um, my favorite thing to do is read. Um, doesn't matter what kind of books you like. It could be fiction, nonfiction, but like find something with substance in it that has themes of like these topics and issues that are real. Um, you, you could be reading a book like Harry Potter, like you could literally be reading Harry Potter and find themes of classism, racism, oppression, colorism. Um, and once you tend to have those ideas and like you're having these conversations with other people, that's when like you guys can like come together and form an opinion, form an idea. Um, Cause I agree that everybody should like have an opinion about something. I think that's important too, surrounding yourself with like a lot of different media too, because I'm also like a media co uh, communication major. And that's something I've noticed a lot is like the more that I've like sought out different media than like usually what's like the, the default or considered the default or the normal, the more I've kind of been like, wow, I have never like thought about these issues in that way. Or I've seen them something that may affect me and my community presented in a different way that's affecting a different one. And it just blows my mind every time. So definitely going out, finding different medias, but also knowing that like, you know, that you're, and Daniel said this too, that your voice carries a lot of power. Like it, it looks different in a lot of different ways. Cause like in our setting, a student voice has a, a lot of power, which I didn't really realize until having to do a lot of the stuff that I've had to do on campus, but also being a voter too, and being an advocate really just has a lot of power and being able to tell stories too. And, and your story, whatever that may be, has a lot of, has a lot of, um, weight behind it and can have a lot of weight behind it depending on how you want to use it and tell it.
one thing that like one of my mentors uh, told me to kind of do is find out what justice like means to me, what it looks like. So I think some advice is really to um, reflect on so that you can therefore cater your actions to that to that work. Um, you can surround yourself around people who value that as well and, and really show like how you care about people um, in your actions and how you define justice. So I think for me, like just when we talk about this, just f figuring out what justice means to you, therefore your actions can reflect it, therefore your values can reflect it, therefore what you say can reflect it as well. Um, that's on the quick, and that's going to be based on what you you always in your community, um, your reading, et cetera, like looking at what you already do to, and looking at what you, I guess the gaps and holes you have in your thinking to figure that out as well. Yeah, I think honestly, I take a lot of my practices, a lot of my, uh, a lot of my information, a lot of the stories from my own family. And I think that's where, that's the essence of where I feel a lot of my passion for, where I feel a lot of my motivation for. And so, you know, since even if you grew up in a different environment, even if you grew up in an environment where um, fortunately you didn't have to see many disparities or, you know, you didn't have to see, you didn't have to go through a lot of stuff. People, you know, people make that up right now in society. And I feel like that's, that's something that we have to be very careful of. You know, people think that um, they had to grow up in in a community with under-resourced uh factors or they had to grow up a certain way in order to have an opinion and you don't you you just have to care you know you just have to care that's the first step in anything is caring um and if you are one of those people that's privileged enough to you know we're all privileged in our own ways but if you are privileged in whatever manner you are listen listen to other folks listen to the people that are being affected listen to the folks that are being affected directly you know um as someone who is an american citizen as someone who is uh, a documented um citizen i can't i can't do anything but listen and help um so yeah i would say listening is the major part of finding your voice of finding your opinions of finding what matters to you because um, if you listen to other folks with similar stories, or if you listen to other folks that come from different backgrounds, that you know that's that's where the information is going to come from. Yeah, news news articles are great, but the first source that person is uh, the real grassroots the real grassroots work, and I think that's where a lot of our work in society lies. And I, I feel like that's where it has to lie, right? You you can be doing something, but if you don't have that real intention of at some point being in direct contact with the people affected by whatever you're doing, then why, why is it even going to work? Why is it working? Uh, we are getting ready to just about wrap up this beautiful conversation. Um, but the last um, question kind of really focuses on us as leaders. And we always end our Above the Noise shows with asking um, our guests to give a song um, that kind of helps them stay above the distractions or anything else that goes on in life. I would definitely believe that COVID has been something that has definitely um thrown you off your course um it has definitely been a time where none of us have never experienced something like this it's very uncertain every day you wake up and you're just trying to figure out what's next is going to happen um and being a leader in these times is sometimes and can really carry a carry a heavy responsibility um so we just want to know what is one song or song you might have been listening to um, that you turn to when you kind of just feel like, well, I wouldn't say that the world is coming to an end, um, but everything is so uncertain. Everything is up in the air. I know I cannot function as a person knowing that nothing is settled in stone. Everything is up and I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I haven't been functioning that well, but I'm keeping it up. 
I'm doing good. I'm, I'm doing self-care. But do you guys have any songs um, that you are listening to right now that kind of helped you through this, um, this moment? Yes. Uh, so, um, again, like, I'm, a, I'm big on, like, my faith and stuff. So one song for me is called um, Make Room by Jonathan McReynolds. And, like, the song is, like, has some lyrics that say, like, I find space for what I treasure. I make time for what I want. Um, I choose my priorities and then and Jesus you're my number one, et cetera. So I'll make room for you. So for me, like whenever I go through it or whatever, or I, even if I'm not going through it, like I realize how important it's for me to make room for my faith, et cetera, um, for my values and things and to be able to reflect and take time to do that so that I am not, you know, always um, feeling this burden, you know, of what's going on around me, feeling this burden of society that society has, feeling, um, these different crises and always, you know, basking in that, but making room for my faith. So therefore I can have hope in that um, and faith through that. So. Um, I think for me, uh, it's definitely a song by her called Gangsta's Cry. It was on his new PTSD album. Growing up, I never really, like I said, me and my mom never really had like very in-depth, like emotional conversations about a lot of things. Um, and so it wasn't until I got to college that like I could talk to people and like cry with them and you know feel like I'm still myself like even after they see me cry like they still see me as a strong person um, and I think with COVID-19 like disrupting a lot of things like a lot of people are losing internships jobs uh, money um, like just reassuring myself like it's literally okay to cry like it's okay for one day, you like have to stay in bed and just be sad um, because it's a lot of sad stuff going on. And so like, it's okay. Like you don't have to always be moving, 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 steady working 24 um, seven. That's definitely a song. Yeah. One song or at least an album that I've been listening to a lot as of late was the uh, new um, Childish Gambino album. I'm a big fan of him. And so I was excited that that came out. So one I've been listening to him of his is uh, I hate that they're all numbers, but 1238, I don't know, it's just nice, upbeat, because during all of this, I just, I like escapisms a lot, and just in different ways that you can find it, just some way to relieve the stress, so for me, that's in a lot of different forms, whether it's from, like, TV shows to games to podcasts, but this one's just a nice one, just, I feel like I can turn off my brain a little bit and just enjoy it, so, yeah, that's my song. All great music um all great tunes thank you so much for sharing <laughs> i think for me it would be uh mi gente by jay Balvin. it's one of those songs that no matter who you are no matter what language you speak no matter where in the world you're from you feel the beat and you're like okay this is popping i like this 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 is yeah we got to play this right and um especially like when you look at the lyrics i mean a lot of the music he makes he's, he's a colombian singer uh worldwide right and so he makes a lot of, like, a lot of his lyrics come from talking about people of the world, um, different cultures, and the, the beats of music, and just how dope, how dope he is, how dope people are, how dope everything is, right? And so, um, one of his lines in Mi Gente that I really, really enjoy is, El mundo es grande, pero lo tengo en mis manos. And he says, Y con el tiempo nos seguimos elevando, which means, the world is big, but I have it in my hands. And with time, we keep elevating, right? And so just those lyrics within itself um, are really, really, they just bring, they shed a light in, in times of like this, in any time really that you're at a dark point in your life. Um, but in times like this, when 
this is such a global song and when Beyonce sings it too. <laughs> so I think uh, Mi Gente, if y'all haven't heard it, check it out. I would definitely recommend. Well, thanks for listening to Above the Noise. If you like what you just heard, please, please make sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes and be sure to check out our socials. We are at Above the Noise Official on Instagram and at Above T Noise on Twitter. This has been an Above the Noise production and we'll see y'all the next episode.